0: Yes, it's a common story now, uh, immigrants and the children of immigrants straddling two cultures, not feeling at home or fully accepted in either place, really, the constant work to bridge the divide, and then the triumphs and lessons of those lives as outsiders. But Muhammad Chowdhury brings a few more nuances to this theme in his new book, Border Crossings. He's the son of Bangladeshi parents. He was born in England, he made it to Oxford and forged a pretty formidable career working in the Middle East and Asia. Muhammad met his Australian wife, Rahana, in London, and the couple lived in Egypt and India but settled back here after she was in a serious car accident in Mumbai, and they now live in Melbourne with their sons. Much of the memoir focuses on his relationship with Islam, his thoughts on how it could be less divisive, and some interesting historical interpretation of how Islam got to where it is today. He shares some funny stories, too, about being a Muslim in England but also the troubles he constantly incurs when travelling. Immigration, police, security forces and the like, they're bemused by this British Bangladeshi Muslim who's learning Arabic and who travels to the Middle East for fun. Muhammad Chowdhury, welcome.
1: Thank you, Geraldine. It's nice to be on
0: air. Your first year at Oxford was quite interesting. You went to a disco and you invited a young woman back to your room for coffee. Now, what happened and how did you manage to remain so naive, dare I say, by the time you started university? I'd hardly
1: met any girls until I was 18 or something. I went to a boys' school and grew up in a fairly traditional environment where, you know, having boyfriends and girlfriends, et cetera, was not really encouraged. Uh, And so, yeah, it was the second week at Oxford. I invited her back to my room for a coffee, thinking coffee means coffee, not understanding that that's code for something else when you're at university. And she was basically crawling all over me when I got into my room and I was just busily trying to like pour a cup of coffee coffee. out, out of a kettle. And then the really funny thing happened is that there was this other Russian foreign student at my college who, weirdly enough, it was midnight, he just came and knocked on my door while this whole sort of ensemble was happening in my room. And uh, I opened the door, and um, whilst he's not the sort of person I always wanted to see, I was so relieved to see him, because as soon as he walked in, the whole atmosphere of the room changed, and the girl just sort of, you know, picked up her coat and left, and and that was that. <laughs>
0: And you also had an amusing, albeit ridiculous, run-in with police involving your car while you're at Oxford. And maybe you could summarise that story and how this was a lesson for the future in terms of how you managed your religion. It was a lesson for the future.
1: I didn't realise it was a lesson until many years later, but my car was parked outside my my college and it had a little prayer on the dashboard of the car, uh, which was happened to be written in Arabic um, with an English translation beneath it. It was all about safe passage when you travel. Unfortunately, when the police were walking by and they they saw the sticker in the dashboard and it had the Arabic writing, I think it maybe raised some suspicions. And then they saw a brown paper bag that was underneath the car mm. and they thought it was maybe a bomb or something. It was actually a mate of mine who'd left me a Chinese takeaway, couldn't find me in my room and had left it under my car and sent me a text message or a message to pick it up. But it all transpired into the police thinking, suspicious package in Arabic writing, there's a problem here.
0: Did this make you bitter at all? It it doesn't sound so in your book, but I do wonder. Not bitter,
1: to be honest with you. And um, the reason being that I think there is a practicality to some of this intrusion, if you like. The intrusion isn't something I welcome, for, for sure. But I think there's a practicality to it given the um, environment that's been around in the world since probably... The mid nineteen eighties, I would think. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that that justifies it or that that makes it any easier to tolerate. I'm not really bitter about it, Geraldine.
0: In fact, you're very interesting. You talk, for instance, about a major shift in the mid nineties in the UK when Muslims started demonstrating their religious identity overtly. And you know, we had something similar, probably a bit later in Australia. You actually found this a bit aggravating. You thought it was rather superficial, but you said this very very interesting observation. You think it was an important step on integration into Western society that Muslims finally felt confident to not hide their religion. Now, this is all pre 9-11, I take it.
1: That's right. And I think like many things, it had a a positive and a negative side to it from my perspective. I mean, the, the positive was that we reached a point where migrants who'd come, say, to the UK, you know, from different uh, geographic backgrounds, were finally beginning to feel confident enough to grow a beard, wear a hijab, and so on. And so the, they were no longer hiding an aspect of their identity, which I think is probably a good thing. However, the the side that I found maybe less positive in my own observation of this was, it was a bit like signaling, to be honest, um, and signaling to try and sort of maybe demonstrate that you're a Muslim. And that, I think, had some oddness to it in the behavior. So, for example, I remember once going to a wedding where on the wedding card, the invitation stipulated Islamic dress is to be worn. So I turned up wearing a suit and a tie. And I sat at my table. And one of my uncles sarcastically said to me, uh, "Mohammed, you're not wearing Islamic dress. And I looked at myself and I said, yes, I am. I've covered my body. Fair enough. It's There's nothing un-Islamic about this. But I think it's really interesting, the joke, because the the point is that I think by Islamic dress, it was being implied you should wear like a Saudi mm. Arabian robe or, or something like that. So in a funny sort of way, I think, you know, this intention to try and show yourself as being a Muslim got very mixed up with cultural identity and other things, which I thought was maybe a little bit sort of misguided.
0: Well, another thing you say got mixed up in this was the conflation of being Arab with being Muslim. And that somewhat alarmed you, I think. I I might add, living here in Australia next to Indonesia, that was something very strongly felt by the Indonesians, that they resented the idea that you had to be Arab to be Muslim.
1: That's right. I constantly have this debate even until now where, I mean, Muslims do this as well, Geraldine. So it's not just non-Muslims who might think that Muslim equals Arab or an Arab equals Muslim. But Muslims do the same thing because Muslims will often wear, you know, Arabian dress, um, even if they're from, you know, India or Bangladesh or Indonesia, etc. So I think to some extent, there's that Confusion that exists both within Muslim communities as well as from non Muslim communities. Now, a few years ago, I was in Syria uh, before the war, so probably in the mid 2000s. Of course, I knew the biblical history of Christianity and of Judaism comes from the same region as where Syria and Lebanon and Palestine are, etc. But what I found uh, really interesting was to actually go to a church in a town near Damascus and find that the prayer in the church was being the primary language in which it was recited was Arabic. And when I listened to the prayer in Arabic, effectively, what we would call the Lord's Prayer in English was in the Arabic version of it. It sounded like the Quran. I then went and bought myself a copy of the Bible in Arabic. And if I read the Bible in Arabic, it sounds like I'm reading the Quran. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting how actually... The Arab region is, of course, the
0: fount of several religious traditions, not just Islam. Well, it is. William Dalrymple's written about all of this terribly well. Why does speaking Arabic, though, raise such suspicions wherever you go, even in an Arabic-speaking country?
1: Yes, I think you're referring to the um, incident that I had in Tahrir Square in In Cairo. Cairo. Yes, Um, in 2005. That particular incident, Geraldine, was interesting because I... I guess the people that saw me, the, the police uh, and security officials that saw me in the square, probably looked at me and, and figured out that this guy is not an Arab. And then when I was speaking Arabic, they got suspicious to why is he speaking Arabic if he's not an Arab. So I think that was the, the oddity there and they basically assumed or inferred that I might be a member of some sort of terrorist group and that's why I speak Arabic and that the thing went downhill from there. In general, why is there suspicion with seeing Arabic letters or hearing the Arabic language? Probably because of the association with terrorism. Mm. Uh, I'm not justifying that association. I'm I'm not sure that's right to make that association automatically. But unfortunately, that's what tends to happen. And
0: why did you learn Arabic? Why make that decision? Oh,
1: weird. So I was sitting in Riyadh advising on Saudi Arabian telecommunications and internet reforms in the early 2000s. And I was hearing Arabic a lot in meetings. And that triggered me to say, you know what? I just need to go and learn this language. Because I'd been reading the Quran and learning how to recite prayers in Arabic from childhood, but never understood any of it. And so for many years, I'd been reciting several minutes worth of Arabic every day, but never understanding it. And I'd carried this sort of frustration around for a while. But here I am sitting in Saudi Arabia in a meeting and I think, you know what, I just need to go and learn this. So then I just signed up for the lessons and and started learning it in a college in London.
0: Muhammad Chowdhury is my guest, and he's written a quite intriguing book called Border Crossings. And, And this is one sort of, I suppose, summary line. A theme of your book, really, is exploring when a brown man living as a Muslim in a Western country becomes a Westerner. And you shared a couple of stories of people telling you that you are, in fact, a Westerner, but you write that you weren't called a Westerner till your 30s. Now, what makes someone living in the UK, or for that matter, Australia, now dubbed a westerner.
1: It's really interesting. So I'd never thought of myself as a westerner. You see, the thing is that when we grew up in the UK, we being first generation migrants... Yes,
0: your parents came in the 60s, I think, didn't
1: they? My parents came to the UK in the 60s from, from what is now Bangladesh, although previously it was, it was East Pakistan. Now, we grew up trying to prove that we're British So the only issue was, please accept me as being British, Mm. right? Even though I'm a different color, etc. Westerner, of course, I guess is a slightly more idealistic type of term than British. British is like a legal thing. Like, okay, have you got a British passport? You should accept me as being a British person. But Westerner, I think, probably indicates more like a certain set of values and beliefs and way of thinking, like believing on democracy and believing in freedom and all that sort of thing. And I'd never thought of even thinking of being a Westerner. Of course, I am a Westerner and I have been ever since I was born. But I just never really thought about it until this friend of mine mentioned it to me sitting in a cafe in Marleybone High Street when she said, Muhammad, you are a Westerner. And I sat there and I thought, God, you're right, I am. I just never thought about it like that. I think there's still a lot of symbolism associated with Westernization, if you like, and a tie. I've heard theories about ties. I've heard theories about croissants as well, believe it. Or. I've heard a croissant is an indication oh. of the cross. Um, so there are some people who will not eat a croissant. I mean, personally, I don't really worry about those things at all and don't really think about them uh, because I don't think the symbolism needs to be taken in that direction.
0: So you mentioned your exploitation of identity emerged as an asset professionally. you very candid. Tell me about this, if if you could, please. I
1: I think it's a superpower for a couple of reasons, Geraldine. So one would be, you know, if you grow up as an ethnic minority, generally, you'll grow up as a bit of an outsider. And that generally means you need to work just that little bit harder to make an impact or to be accepted, or to be listened to. It also means you get used to being sort of on the outside or on the periphery. And I think, that sort of experience of disadvantage, whilst it's not something I'd wish upon everybody, can, I think, breed a greater degree of resilience and and sort of flexibility in how you operate. So that's one. The second one is, practically speaking, you know, for me, having worked in dozens of countries and speaking a few languages, I feel as though I am somehow able to tune in to different people's body language or talking maybe a little bit more than the average person. So if I combine all that, It's a real superpower, to be honest, and I I feel, and you mentioned this in your question, I feel as though it's cheating a little bit in the sense that I can go into a meeting or into a project and feel as though I can operate quite well, partly because of just that sort of head start I've had because Mm -hmm. of the cultural adjustments I've had to make throughout my life.
0: I mean, you're right that this, a lot of the racism that was very obvious, like there were two boys who made a daily habit of spitting on the windows of whoever was driving you to school. And mercifully, that is a long time ago. That's disappeared from your life. But you have this observation, a more insidious, opaque suspicion of Islam replaced it, which I suppose you referred to earlier. I wonder how you find Australia uh, when uh, Treats this when you compare it to the rest of the world now that you're settled here?
1: I think Australia's in a journey of its own, uh, Geraldine, towards becoming a much more multicultural society. Um, I think that in that re- respect, its journey is analogous to journeys that other countries have gone through you know, in the past, like the UK, for example, or 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 even, you know, the US, although the US is rather different, I guess. Um, but but on the other hand, Geraldine, I think one thing that's interesting is that a lot of the migration that took place into Australia happened after 9-11, right? So so therefore, by the time lots of Muslims came here in the 2000s, 9-11 had happened. And so they, therefore, there was almost like a perception of Muslims or of Islam that had been formed here, which might have made it a bit harder for Muslims to settle in. Um, so I think that's probably one difference between Australia and maybe places like the UK. Mm. But I honestly, having lived here now for five and a half years, I feel as though we're definitely making a progress on, on these matters. You know, Whilst there will still be obstacles along the way, I think we are making progress.
0: Excellent to hear. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Mahmoud Chowdhury uh, has written Border Crossings. It's published by New South Publishing. It's out this month and he also was uh, published in the week uh, during the week too with a piece on the challenges of virtue signalling, which he'd watched as a consultant. Well, up next, uh, we're going to have a lovely story about ambitions for Indigenous enterprise.